great to be back. Uh, we, we did spend a week, a small team of us from the church in Haiti, uh, had a great time uh, relating with the kids, talking with the elders of the community, helping to build a church building, uh, seeing the updates on the water and the situation with their uh, clean water and what they're doing uh, there in the community. Uh, so it was just a great week. We have a lot to share with you. We did want to show you just a very short clip uh, of some of our experience there, and particularly an update on the water project in Haiti. As you may remember, um, we, we showed pictures and some video from back in January of what their water situation was like, and it was gross, just to be honest with you. Uh, they haven't had clean water as a community in their entire history. And so step one, phase one for us was uh, to start to invest some money as a church so that they could institute a, a what's called a living water system, which cleans up the water and makes it drinkable. So I wanted to show you the update on where they are with that progress, and uh, we'll share more later on after the service. And behind me, uh, you can see the progress on the filter house for the water filtration system. The contractors have been coming up here and have made a lot of progress uh, on this area. And you may remember from the last time that we were here in January, the conditions of the, the water and where they were drawing from uh, weren't very desirable at all. And so now they've capped off uh, the area where they draw the water. They're putting in this uh, filtration house. It's going to house a living water system, which cleans the water perfectly uh, so that it would be clean enough for you and I to drink without any issues. Um, so this is the, the builder house down here, and I want to show you the place where they used to get the water, where they've capped off the stream, which is a vast improvement over what was here before. So you can see this is where uh, the rocks and the mud and debris were before, uh, where they were just washing their clothes and drawing water from. So now this is all capped off and clean, and the water runs down here temporarily uh, without a lot of the sediment that was in it before. And eventually that water will get pumped into this filter house, cleaned up even more, and then put it into that cistern at the bottom of the hill for storage, for clean water, for coffee washing, and for distribution around the whole area. So this is a major upgrade to what they had before. Everyone in the community is very, very excited about the progress, and it's uh, the first step in a transformed community here in Shadrach. So it's, if you remember the pictures, and we, we might be able to show you some of those at the lunch afterwards, just amazing transformation so far. Uh, we're just shocked at what uh, progress they've made in six months' time. And I asked one of the leaders, what, what does uh, clean water mean for you? What would it do for your community? And uh, he paused for a good 20 seconds before he responded and said, uh, one, it would keep their children from becoming very ill and some of them dying. Um, and so that, that's a major thing for their community. And two, they want to be known as a place to come and find life uh, all over that region of Haiti. And so uh, when you ask them, how is this going to bless you? They will in turn say, it not just blesses us, but we want to be a blessing to those people who are all around us. And so they, they really want to be a center for uh, not just clean water, but living water. And they, they love to tell the story of how God is working in their community and doing great things and, and using us from all this ways away to, to see transformation happen among them. And they're just, even in their normal dialogue, they're telling people about Jesus and the life that he brings. So it's, it's just a great time with them, and we have a, a ton of stories to share you. With you, and, and so we'll do that afterwards. Um, meantime, we have some, some work to do. We're in the bit of a, a series right now that we started last week. Pete started it off, and the, the series is called With. Uh, and so, what we're doing through this whole series is we are reimagining what it looks like to be in relationship and to relate to God. And so, we're, we're kind of debunking a lot of the ways that we typically, maybe without realizing it, 
relate to God, and, uh, but we kind of don't understand the way that we relate to God. We just do it. And so we're, we're taking some of the ways that we tend to do that without knowing it and bringing them to the surface so that we can see them a little bit better and find out if they're actually worth pursuing or if we need to pursue a different way. And so if you remember, if you were here last week, Pete started out the series by talking about life under God. And what we meant by that is that life under God is kind of living your life according to a certain set of rules or rituals or moralistic teachings. And why, by doing that, you live up to such a, a good standard that you ask God in return for, to, for Him to do something for you in return. And so because God is in control and I'm not, um, if I live my my life a certain way up to a certain standard or perform certain rituals, then I can say to God, hey, look, God, what I've done, how I've lived, how I've done things, and in looking at what I've done, God, please do this for me. We actually saw a lot of this uh, in Haiti because in, in Haitian culture, voodoo is still very much a dominant religious activity among the people. And even though it, when you travel around Haiti, you kind of find out that maybe like 80 to 90% of the people in Haiti are Christian, 50% of the entire country practices voodoo. And, and when you're traveling along the countryside, you actually see houses and they have flagpoles on the outside with flags at the top and they're witch doctors. And people go to visit those people when, um, when they need something in their life. And so they may have a sick child that needs to get healthy. They may need occupation or money. Um, they, they may need to travel and have safety. Uh, there, there's a whole number of things that they may want out of life. And because they aren't sure if they're going to get them or not, they will travel to a witch doctor, and that witch doctor will perform certain religious ritualistic activities and then they will give assurance to the people that the, they'll have the outcome that they want. That's kind of life under God. But it isn't just a Haitian thing. We actually do this a lot in everyday life because we think that if I live up to a certain standard, then God kind of owes me a certain response into the way that I've been living. And so I have more clout with God to ask Him for stuff that I want from Him. Um, and so this actually permeates the way that even many of us in American culture live. And so Pete kind of debunked some of that and talked about what God actually wants is a life with us, that he is our treasure and not the things that we can get from him. But So, so we started out with life under God, and what we're going to do this morning is kind of look at the flip side of that equation, and we're going to call that life over God. So let me ask this as we kind of start out this morning. How many of you guys... Um, really like to be sort of Mr. Fix-It around the house. Like to fix stuff, like to kind of get into things. You probably get halfway through a project and realize you have no idea what you're doing, right? <laughs> oh yeah, I should have looked at the stereo instructions before I started this process and now I'm in a mess, right? Um, I, I kind of like to, to fix things around the house when I know that I can do them and so... I don't often venture out to do things that I'm not sure I can do, but every once in a while I do that. And one of those instances was I had never uh, changed a headlight on an automobile before. And I thought to myself, there's a headlight out on my car. Um, it, it is a small device that gets plugged in. I've changed many a light bulb in my house. You just unscrew it. Take it off, you screw the other one in, and all, all is done. And besides that, I've got the owner's manual to my automobile, which has in it contained instructions on how to change a headlight on my car. This should be a piece of cake, right? How, how long do you think it took me? Two, two days, yeah. I, thank you for the vote of confidence, Lisa. I really appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, I struggled at the thing for probably about two hours before I totally gave up and I drove to Jiffy Lou and had the guy at Jiffy Lou replace the light bulb for me. Uh, but it would have taken me two days, yeah. So, so I did everything according to the manual, but I, what I'm thinking in my mind the entire time is I've got the instruction book why in the world would I need to go back to the person who made the vehicle or an expert on the vehicle 
when I have everything I need before me to complete the job. Uh, But that actually wasn't the case because I didn't have the understanding on how to do it. And so a couple months later, when the other light bulb went out, um, (laughs) Mandy decided she was going to try to fix it instead of me, and it took her all of 15 minutes to complete the entire job. Yeah. It's a woman thing. She has smaller hands, though. So that's... (laughs) It's a very tight space in there. That's a whole other series, yeah. Um, Here's the thing, though. Many of us, though, if we're really being honest with ourselves, we kind of relate to God in somewhat of the same fashion. Uh, We we want to know the key to life. We want to know the instructions on which to live our lives And so we we download those instructions in the form of key principles and laws and rules. And we say, if I just live my life according to these set of principles, then all will go well with me. And I don't really need the one who wrote those instructions if I can really get my mind around what he wrote, right? And so we actually relate to God in very much the same way. And we're going to call this mentality of living life over God Because what it does is, it says, I'm going to live my life in such a way that I minimize the need for God's presence in my life if I can just live my life according to the right laws and principles. It's actually a very common way to relate to God in very affluent cultures like our own Western mentality here in America. Because we all want efficiency, We all want to be able to live life to the maximum, right? Many of us are type A personalities, and so we try to live life according to certain rules so that we don't really need the person who wrote those rules. Uh, Another way to think of it is this. Um, It's kind of the search to live life according to a set of laws and principles instituted by God so that I can gain more control over my life. So a way to think of it might be like this. Um, Rather than eating the good foods which bring with those foods all the vitamins and minerals that we need for everyday life, rather than going through the process of preparing and being in those fruit, what I'm going to do is I'm going to extract from those foods all the the vitamins and minerals that I need, and I'm going to put them into a pill, and then I'm going to take that pill which will then reduce the need to actually go to the source of those things, right? How many people take a a daily vitamin, right, that has everything that you could possibly need for daily living? So all you have to do is eat chocolate bars and vitamins, and and you'll be good to go, right? (laughs) Is that an issue? I don't don't know. See, it doesn't make any sense in the way that we eat, but we often relate to God as if that were true. We don't need to go to the source. We need to go to the extracted material that he brings and find out the way that he would have us live, and therefore I don't need the source in order to live that way. It's a very interesting way to to see it. And actually a lot of it comes from a, a scientific revolution that happened in this country and around the world whereby people started to get their minds around the way that the world works. They started to understand laws and principles of like gravity and the strong and weak nuclear force. What makes the world tick? DNA and genetics. And so no longer do I go to, to a witch doctor to find a cure. I go to a real doctor who has real remedies which actually provide the the. the the change that I need physiologically in order to get better. And and many of those advances are good advances, right? We we like the fact that we live in a culture which understands the way that the human body works better than it did, let's say, 100 years ago, right? Anybody benefit from modern surgery or modern medicine? It's a good thing to have, right? But in the same way, we've gotten a hold of this mentality that we can reduce everything in life down to certain laws and principles that are universally accepted. 
And if we just hold to those principles, then we can control the way that we live and the way that the world operates. So we transfer that scientific knowledge then into a relationship with God. And we think, all I need to do is understand the way that God would work, and then I can understand the mind of God, and I don't need God anymore. It's very interesting how this works, not just in the outside world, but within the community of God's people. And one of the best examples that I can think of is that there's a book called Jesus CEO. It's by a woman named Lori Beth Jones. And she kind of speaks to this sort of mentality of what it's like to extract from God the things that God would do so that we don't need him anymore. And she says this as part of her book. Anyone who practices these spiritual principles is bound to experience success. In other words, the the principles that she gives in her book on leadership according to the way that Jesus would live, if you practice these things, you'll experience success. In fact, the study and application of spiritual principles comes with success guaranteed. In other words, the translation would be, you can lead like Jesus without actually needing Jesus to be involved in your leadership. Doesn't that sound strange? All you need to do is extract the right universal principles that Jesus practiced, and you too can be the Messiah of your own company without any need for the Messiah to be in your life. It sounds very strange when you put it that way, right? And yet how often do we all live life according to this same dynamic? I think it's probably more prevalent than we let on. But uh, really, there's nothing new to this mentality at all. This isn't like something that's come along in the last 20 years that's been an issue. This goes all the way back to the beginning. And so we need to kind of be honest with ourselves and take a look at what the Bible has to say about this mentality because it will actually help to break us from its hold. Um, If you remember anything about the story of God's people... um, God allowed his people to go into slavery in Egypt, and they were there for approximately 400 years before God ransomed them out of captivity and brought them through the Red Sea and ultimately to the Promised Land. And he used a guy by the name of Moses to lead those people out of that place and to the place that he promised them. And so along the way, uh, they encountered a lot of things that they didn't particularly like. Things that they wanted changed in their midst because they were used to getting things like water and food and care, health care, all the things that weren't existing out in the wilderness. And so what God did is he used the leadership of Moses to bring about grace to his people in the form of all the things that they would need for their care on the route to the promised land. And the thing that God used over and over and over again, do you know what that thing was? The thing that Moses carried with him everywhere he went? His staff, right? And so you see over and over again, God using Moses' staff to create relief or, or to bring God's people forward. And so when, when they went through the Red Sea, what is it that, they, that Moses used to part the sea? His staff. When the people needed water, um, Moses struck a rock, and out of that water, or out of that rock, poured all the water that the people need. It was kind of a symbol of God's presence being upon Moses, kind of anointing his leadership for the people, and so it became a very, very important symbol of God's activity among the people. And so we get to a certain point in the story when. Once again, the people need something from Moses and ultimately from God. And the question is going to be, how is God going to provide for his people? What way is he going to use to make his presence known? So we'll catch up with the story in Numbers 20. If you want to follow along in one of the Bibles, it's on page 108. That's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, And we'll start off in verse 2, and it says this. Now there is no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. So they're not happy with their leadership because they're uh, pretty thirsty at this point. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring 
the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here. They're being a little bit dramatic at this point, right? Why did you bring us out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. So they get to this point where they've hit kind of a wall. And they're looking to Moses to provide for them because there is nothing in the land to provide for them. It's a point in the story where there is a major, major need that arises among the people. And the question that we're kind of left with is, what is Moses going to do with this opposition that he has been presented with? How is he going to handle it? What is he going to do? Who is he going to turn to? How is it going to be resolved? Moses needs in every way to look for a solution that's going to work. Because if if it doesn't work, they're probably going to revolt and throw him out and maybe kill him along the way and then head back to Egypt. So have you ever been in kind of a situation, maybe not quite to this extent, uh, but a situation in life where there is a major need that needs to be provided for and you have no idea how that need is going to be provided for? you know that people are looking to you to provide a solution and you have no ability apart from God's intervention to actually find a solution that works. I I was thinking of this when we uh, started Cultivate Church, when we were going through the beginning process and the major need that there was, even in a small community, to provide the kind of leadership necessary to move the church forward, to help it to grow, to, to create and cast vision so that the community would move forward and have purpose and mission in the world and really be faithful to what God was calling us to do. And one of the major temptations that I faced right from day one is a, a temptation that almost every pastor and leader faces at some point in their life. And it was the temptation to take something that was working elsewhere and plug it in here. Right? Because the mindset is, if it works there, and they've worked out all the kinks, they've done all the test work and gotten the bugs out, then it should transfer over to here, and we can just plug and play and learn from the wisdom of others and move forward without any issues and just go on, and God will bless it and multiply and grow it. But that is never the kind of leadership that God actually calls the church to or you to in everyday life. Did you know that? Because what it does is it cuts out the need for God to work out things through you. It actually minimizes His presence in your life because what you're doing is you're just transferring principles that someone else learned into your life and saying, God, I don't actually need to listen to you. One of the major temptations as a church, because there, there is all kinds of pressure for the church to succeed, right? To grow, to take in a good offering, all those types of things. And maybe you've experienced some of those pressures in your everyday life. Maybe in your job, where you have a boss that has his thumb on you, and you think, if I don't perform up to a certain standard, they're going to fire me, and they're going to get somebody else that performs better. And it creates a tension, doesn't it, to cut corners, And to do things maybe that you wouldn't otherwise do because they've been successful for other people, they'll be successful for me, and I don't actually have to learn any lessons according to those things. I can just go along on my everyday life. That's the kind of pressure that Moses is feeling at this point. And so we have to see what it is that Moses is going to do with that pressure. So Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. What does he say next? Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. Sounds like a good plan, right? All God says is, here's what you need to do. I've given you the instructions. You've taken the time to come and listen to me and what I have to say. I'm telling you what to do. Now go and do it, and it will go well for you and for the people. You'll have more than enough to drink. 
Do you think this is pretty basic stuff, right? Nothing really to question or to say, God, I don't know what you're doing here. You're kind of being silent to me. No, God actually says, here's what you're to do. But here's the rub. This is actually a change in plan from the previous time that Moses got water for the people, is it not? We already mentioned that one of the things that, got, that Moses did with his staff is that he struck a rock, and from that rock came all the water necessary for the people. It's actually found in Exodus 17. And so Moses has a little bit of experience going on, does he not, with how to draw water from a rock? Probably more experience than you and I have at that very thing, right? I don't, I mean, if there are a rock right here, I, I'm just telling you right now, I wouldn't know how to get water from it. So Moses has a little bit of experience going on. And, and so he's got a choice now. What is he going to do? Is he going to choose the path that worked for him previously, or is he going to go with God on this new way and actually listen to what God had to say? So let's find out what Moses does. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. Everything's good up until now, right? No no change in plan. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. And lo and behold, water gushed out the community and their livestock drank. What's Moses doing here? See, rather than trusting in the instructions that God had given him in the moment, Moses trusted in the method which produced the best results in the past. Right? He wanted to use his staff. And what God was saying to him is, take the staff, But don't rely upon the staff because it's not the staff that draws water. It's my ability to work through you which actually produces results. And instead of listening to God, Moses goes back to the method that he was most comfortable with and he strikes the rock just like he did before. Why do you think Moses would do that? <laughs> There's that, right? Hey, rock, you know, change is difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, especially when you've had proven results before, right? Why would I change up my method if it's produced results for me in the past, right? Yeah, you can see that in his voice, right? He's a little perturbed, he kind of blames them. And so there's a little bit of a humility issue, right? Yeah. Here's the thing, though. He was so afraid that God would not come through for him that he used the strategy that, that best satisfied his need for control in the situation. So what is Moses afraid of? Yeah. I'll put it this way. He's more afraid of losing people's confidence in his leadership than he was in losing his relationship with God. Because everybody's looking at Moses, right? Moses has come through for us every single time before. And if Moses doesn't come through for us this time, then what happens to their confidence in Moses' leadership? It gets seriously undercut, right? And Moses, knowing all of this, he is more afraid of losing that confidence from his people than he is in losing God's blessing on his leadership. It's a very interesting dynamic. What Moses is actually saying is the, the, the reason that he is in leadership is to please the people who he's leading, not please the God who he's serving and who put him in that position of leadership. That is a major, major temptation for every single one of us. Because it places in our hearts a fear of people over the fear of God who actually gave us the opportunity to lead in the first place, does it not? Moses is just demonstrating just how fearful he is that God will not show up. And because he's so afraid, he says, I need to take back the control from God 
and to perform in such a way that I know every time I can produce the results that I need in order to keep the confidence of the people. Now I know that there are some of you like me who have a question rolling around in your mind. And the question probably goes something like this. Why should I change if the, if the method that I used before actually produces the results again that I needed to continue the way that I was going? Did the people get water? They do, right? They actually get water. Moses, as far as the people are concerned, they don't know anything has happened. They have no idea that God told Moses to go a different way. All they know is that they're drinking fresh water. So what's the big deal? Why not continue to do the same things over and over and over again? Why not continue that same pattern and just say, I've gotten my life down to the same basic rules and I'm just going to live according to those rules no matter what and I don't need to listen to anyone or anything or any God to tell me differently. Because remember what we said? Moses cared more about the people's confidence of him and not the confidence of God. Whose opinion really matters? It's easier to say than it is to experience, right? It's much easier to live our lives according to appeasing the, the perception of people than it is according to, to, to the appeasing the perception of God. And yet what we see when, when this whole story is wrapped up is that it's really the opinion of God that matters. Because it says this, But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I gave them. In other words, what God is saying is, you were, cons- you were too concerned with your own honor and not enough with my honor. And it's actually me who produces the water, not you and your staff. And because you failed to learn this lesson, your lifelong dream of entering into the land that I've been promising you to give you over and over and over again, you've lived the last 40 years of your life thinking that you will gain hold of the promised land that I give my people, you're going to go up to the borders of that land. You will be able to see how good it is, but you will not be able to enter. That's pretty drastic as far as punishments go, right? As far as discipline goes. And God, God, if you read further in the story, it's not like God said, okay, you learned your lesson, Moses. You got the story. Now you can go in. Moses dies on the banks of the Jordan River, looking into the promised land, but he never sets foot in that land. And you think, man, that's a pretty harsh. I mean, why would God do something like that to such a great leader like Moses who had gotten it right over and over and over and over again? It's not like Moses made a whole lot of mistakes. This is probably his worst one. It's because Moses started to get into his mindset that leadership was about people's eyes on him and not people's eyes on God. And when Moses' honor started to increase more than God's and people started to get the idea that it was more about the leader than about God and his activity in the community... God said, I need to get this leader away and bring up somebody else so that the people would know that it's about God and not about people. I mean, there's a great lesson in here for us as a community because it's very easy for us as a church to start to think that it's all about us or to start to think that it's all about Jay and his leadership. And the reason that we're where we are is because Jay has been a great leader or because he's done this or because he's done that or because he's a fantastic preacher. I don't know. I mean, you come up with your own reasons, you know. <laughs> but let me tell you, if we look to those things to produce the results as a church that we need to accomplish the mission that God has for us, we will stand on the banks of the Jordan River and we will never get to the promised land that God has for us as a church. 
Ever. Ever. Because it will always be about us and not about Him. And God says, I will refuse to bless that kind of mentality every single time. If you humble yourselves, then I will exalt you. But if you exalt yourselves, watch out, because I'm going to humble you. That's what he says, right? And so this, a major lesson that we need to learn, when we go to places like Haiti, it becomes very easy for it to become all about cultivate church and what we are doing in the community. But we are a small, small player in a much larger story that God is doing. The great thing about this story is that it is God that produced the rock, right? God made everything. And so the rock is his. The water is his. The staff is his. Moses is his. And yet Moses thinks it's me that produces. And God says, no, you don't get it. It's actually, I'm the one that's produced everything. If you cut me out, you lose the whole deal. So, when we're thinking about this, there, there are some reasons why this kind of mentality, this life over God, will never live up to its promises for us. So I want to try to convince you of this, because this will help to shake you, maybe, from this kind of mentality. When you try to institute these things in your job or in your family, and you think, if I just live right, if I just get the right rules down, then everything will go well. And there's a couple things that you need to know. The first one is this. That life over God will always marginalize the presence of God in your life. Because what becomes God for you are the principles and not the God who gives those principles. For Moses, he was more concerned about his staff coming through for him than God coming through for him. Because he was trusting in his staff more than he was God. So where is God in the equation? He's pushed to the side, isn't he? He's pushed to the margins. And God will always get pushed to the margins of your life when you hold the principles higher than Him. Every single time. You'll say things to yourself like, why should I pray? Why, why do I need to listen to God? Why do I need to fast? Why do I need to seek God's blessing if I've already discovered the most effective principles that God would employ? If I just know all the steps, then I just repeat those steps every single time and the blessing of God will come. And every single time, that pushes God to the sideline of our lives. The second thing is this, is that it actually fails to take away the fear which is motivating us to live out that lifestyle in the first place. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it would actually fail to take away the fear of of not being in control? Because the more you live your life according to a certain set of principles and you say to yourself, these are the things which are going to make my life better, the more it becomes about your ability to live up to the principles that you hold so dear. So who's to blame when those principles don't work out in the end? You are. And I am. It actually puts more responsibility, it it, it builds more onus on ourselves to live up to those certain things because the more we live up to them we think the more life is going to succeed but then the more it becomes about ourselves and the more it becomes about us and our need to come through every single time like Moses the more afraid we are to fail the more afraid we are when we don't have control over a situation and the last reason why it never lives up to his promises is because it causes us to measure success by results rather than faithfulness to God. So when it came to Moses giving the people water, what was God more interested in? The means or the end? The means, right? It's actually all about the means. He says, I want you to speak to the rock. The end actually ends up being the same, whether Moses speaks or whether he strikes it with the rock. And because the end is actually the same, God says, I'm caring more about the means. I'm caring more about how you get there and not whether you get there. This life over God mentality, though, it will always justify the means by the end. Well, I I got to the right place. And so that justifies my actions to get there. So it becomes all about the ends, and I will do everything possible 
to gain my end goal, and it doesn't matter who I trample on or what kind of principles I use to get me there. But if you're truly living life with God, then it's actually His responsibility to take care of the ends. And it's our responsibility to be faithful to God in the means. And that's the way that life is supposed to work, actually. As we're faithful to God, bringing Him into our daily lives and living life with Him, we say to God, Your will be done. And He does. He actually makes the ends work as long as we bring Him into the means and live life according to Him. And then, in that mentality, it becomes much less about success and much more about faithfulness to God, does it not? Moses, you can see, is getting it wrong by the way he even speaks to the people. He says to the people, must we bring water out of this stone for you? Must we? Moses is forgetting the entire point. It's not about we. It's actually about him. The more it's about him, the less it needs to be about us. The more we can live our lives according to him. So here's kind of the big idea that that we're bringing together. Is that life over God, which is kind of the search to live life according to a set of laws and principles instituted by God. And the whole point is to gain more control over our lives. It will always leave us unsatisfied because it requires us to bear the weight of our own decisions rather than trusting in and living with God. And in the end, it actually brings death. (laughs) Yeah, the life over God will always leave us unsatisfied because it requires us to bear the weight of our own decisions rather than trusting in and living with God. And the thing that drives all of this is this whole behavior is the need to control our circumstances in order to minimize the fear that we have of not being in control. And Pete talked a lot about that last week. It drives so much of our behavior. Um, great example of this since I just came back from a foreign country and had to ride on a plane is that I, I've dealt with a lot of anxiety over flying. And I don't share that with a whole lot of people. And the reason I haven't shared that with a whole lot of people is because I've been kind of a, a, afraid that it would sort of bubble up to the surface again. And um, it started out with a couple bad experiences the first few times that I've flown. And uh, it, really a controlling fear that when I get onto an airplane... Um, and the door seals in, I start to get incredibly panicked. And and the reason for that is because on an airplane, you have how much control over the situation? Zero. Zilch, right? And so even though I know in my mind that it it is like, you know, 250 times more likely that I'm going to die in the car on the way to the airport rather than on the airplane, I am completely and totally relaxed in the automobile and totally a mess on the airplane. And because of this, I think the way maybe to overcome some of this is to try to devise mechanisms of control so that I feel better about being in flight. And so I started to research airplanes and aerodynamics. I started to talk to Kyle, who designs airplanes, and said I'm totally crazy for having this kind of anxiety that... You know, the, the plane could basically explode in midair and you'd still get to where you want to go. And, uh, you know, <laughs> stuff that an engineer would say to, to make other people feel better. Um, but lift and drag and all the things that actually make an airplane fly, because the more information I think that I have, the more, uh, you know, the, the more control I'll have over my own feelings and situations, which always helped in the days leading up to the airplane, but as soon as the door closed, the feelings would return just the same. didn't matter how much knowledge I had over the situation. And so I thought, okay, my next route is to try to medicate the problem. And, and, and if, so if I'm totally oblivious to what's happening, then I'll make it through flight. And, and I, I read an article about that, that it actually serves to create more panic over flight and that, than it does to mitigate that fear. 
I started to actually think and pray about what was motivating all of this fear of loss of control. And the root of all of it, I've got to be honest with you, is that I didn't trust God to get me where I was going. Every bump, every hiccup, every turn, I thought to myself, not only is God not in control, but the people who are flying the airplane are clueless. <laughs> and so what I started to do is pray through some of those feelings. God, why is it that I, I have this reaction every time? What do I need to change about the way that I understand who you are and to know that you are with me? Because if I know that you're with me, then I don't need to be in control anymore. And i got to tell you, the more that I prayed through that, the less anxiety that I had. To the point now where I told Mandy when I came back from this, this recent trip, I didn't have a single anxiety or panic attack the entire time. Because I knew, I just knew that God is with me. And, and here's the thing, even if the plane does go down, God is still with me. God is still with us. And the point is that he is with us, not what he can do for us. And I wasn't trusting who he is and what he had done through his son on the cross for me. The more I get that, the less fear and anxiety I have over my life. So where do you have fear? Where do you have anxiety? Where do you look to, to, to gain control over your life in such a way that you have to cut out God in order to gain that control? That's, that's life over God. And that's never the life that God intended for you. God wants a life with you. He wants a relationship with you. Jesus' strongest rebuke was for people who tried to cut God out and produce the life that God gives without the God who gives it. And he tells a group of people who are great at this something very harsh when he says, you search the Scriptures because you believe that in them you will find life. The Scriptures speak of me and yet you refuse to come to me to find it. See, underneath this drive for efficiency and manageability over our life is the need for control. And the need for control is always driven by fear. You know what the single thing, the single most commanded thing that God has in all of Scripture? The one thing that He tells us over and 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 over again. Do not fear. And it's not, he, he, he doesn't say do not fear because you have more control than you think you do. He says do not fear because I've created the world and I love you and I've redeemed you and I've made you part of my family through my son. You have nothing to worry about. In fact, eternity is taken care of for you and because it is, you can live your life without fear. Did you know that? But it takes a moment-by-moment moment living with God to make that a reality. You know who the best person on earth was at doing that? Jesus. I love what Jesus says. And we'll wrap up with this. He says, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me, he has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases Him. In other words, what Jesus is saying is the only thing that makes me successful in life, the only thing that makes me able to accomplish the mission that God has me on this earth for is that I do nothing that I have not heard from my Father. Everything I teach, I heard from Him. Everything I do, I learn from Him. All of my life is lived with my Father. And let me tell you, just as we close, Jesus makes a way for you to live life with the Father, does He not? He actually says that in Him, because we have His Spirit in us, Jesus gives us the ability to cry to His Father, who becomes our Father, Abba Father. We cry out to Him knowing that He is with us always. He has given us that ability to live moment by moment with the one who made and controls the entire universe. And so we have a choice. Are we going to live with God 
the God who loves us and redeems us? Or are we going to live over him and try to cut him out of the situation? I hope it's the first one for all of us, both as a church and individuals, because that is the only way that we will ever see the promised land in our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we just we come before you, and um, I just want to give a second as your people to confess to you um, our need for control uh, and our fear. And so, um, God, we're just, we're just going to take 10 seconds to confess to you uh, an area in our life which is controlled by fear and the need for control. So God, we confess to you uh, in this moment. I encourage you just to to take a few seconds, say a few sentences to your Father because He's listening to you right now. Father, we confess that these things that we've... brought before you today, they are motivated and driven because we don't believe in our heart of hearts that you are actually in control and that you love us enough to bring us to a good end. And so God, as a community, we repent of that now. We ask God that you would change our hearts and make us new. Help the things that we believe in our mind to actually be believed in our hearts and manifested in our actions and in our thoughts that we love you and know, God, that you are a good God who controls all things. And the greatest proof of that is the fact that even when things seemed most dark in this world, when your son was dying on a tree, you were still in control. Help that be our story. Help that be our song when life gets out of control and we fear that you are not in it. Lord, we thank you that you've made everything possible to live life with you. And so we ask for your forgiveness when we look to live life according to your principles without you. Help us, God, to to live life with you because you've done so much to make that way a reality for us. Thank you, God, for your son. Thank you for the life that you give us. Please change us by your spirit, we ask in this time. Amen.